0: All right, would you take the Word of God? Turn your attention, please, to 1 Peter chapter number 1. I mentioned in the Scripture reading, our focus will be verse number 6, but it's very likely that I will cross-reference several passages of Scripture. So I hope you have come hungry. The Bible often equates feeding, you know, with Bible teaching. You know, the milk of the Word of God and the meat of the Word of God. And it's interesting how Job said that he desired the Word of God more than his necessary meat, his necessary food. As you look back on your week, uh, of course, we didn't have our midweek service, so maybe because of that and because of things you face, you're all the more hungry for the Word of God. And so, yeah, cross-references, one verse, but I plan to have a significant uh, Bible content this morning. For the sake of feeding your soul. Suffering is the topic of the book, and suffering is something that all of us go through at different points in our lives, and some of us spend a large percentage of our lives going through suffering, larger percentages maybe than others. But nonetheless, this is a universal situation, this thing of suffering, and again, a theme of the book. We've considered the theme as we studied the previous verses in chapter one, this theme of trials or temptations or suffering. I've pointed that out over and over, so I won't belabor that emphasis other than to say verse number six makes it very clear that life includes seasons of suffering. And so I want to give the message this morning this title, and that is rejoicing in a season of suffering. And we will have. Uh, Some slides uh, this morning, we'll have four major ideas, uh, four points, and I'll give them to you right now. If you're a note taker, you could jot these things down. When you're in the midst of suffering, isn't it true that you often have a lot of questions in the suffering, in the trial? A lot of questions, a lot of things are running through your mind. Verse number six poses and answers, I would say, four major questions. Here are the questions. How many? how heavy, how long, and how necessary. These are the things we'll discuss from verse number six. How many trials is the idea? How heavy are these trials? How long is the trial going to last? And how necessary are these things, trials, these, these trials in my life? And, and what we will conclude is, is what the Bible says. Notice verse number six, wherein ye greatly rejoice. We will land the plain with the first phrase of the verse. We will try to draw all these uh, questions and answers uh, to a conclusion, and that is, how can I rejoice in seasons of suffering? All right, so the first question, and I want to move with some haste for the sake of the content this morning, the, the, the quantity of content. The first question is, how many? And the verse gives us an indication concerning how many trials. We know the verse is about trials because of the word, the last word of the verse, temptations. You understand that in Scripture, the word temptation is used sometimes to describe a solicitation to do evil. And that's what we think of when we think of temptation, a solicitation to do evil. I'm being tempted to do bad. But often in the Bible, the King James Bible translates the word temptation. Uh, when it is not referring to a solicitation to do evil, but it is referring to a trial or a test. And that's what it is here. And so how many tests come into my life? Well, 1 Peter 1.6 uses the word manifold. Somebody says, okay, yeah, I'm living. I'm living out my life. I'm breathing. I'm, I'm facing some trials, some suffering maybe, some testing. How many of these things am I going to have to face? Well, Peter uses the word manifold. Here's what it means. It gives us an indication of how many, but it means that which is diverse, um, that which is various, and specifically, it's the idea of many-colored it is an assortment of trials, uh, manifold trials. And so we know that the theme of the book is suffering, and in specific, the book is about suffering in the face of religious persecution. And that's one category of the manifold trials, is, is to be persecuted because you love Jesus. That's, that's really the, the context of this book. But it is okay to recognize the manifold types of temptation. So so you might not right now be facing religious persecution because you love Jesus, but you're definitely going through or have been through a time of trial and suffering. And so yeah, the content of the book is about persecution. That's the type of, of trial. But maybe your trial is a vocational trial. You're struggling at your job. Or maybe because of the virus, you've lost your job. And that brings about some suffering financially, not just a vocational trial, but maybe you're facing financial trial. Maybe you're facing health trial. I mean, and you've tried to, you know, take care of yourself. You've tried to make reasonable food choices and stay active, and yet you're still, something has come about in your life that just was just, just totally surprising, and you're facing a health trial, and you find it alarming, and you feel like you're free-falling physically. You know, you don't know what to expect. Maybe you find yourself in pain physically because of the health trial. Uh, Maybe the type, the manifold temptation is not just persecution for your faith, not vocational, not financial, not just health, but but sometimes the ones that hurt the deepest are relational trials. Because you love people. And for some reason, they're not reciprocating that love. Maybe it's your spouse, and you're struggling in that relationship. Or maybe it's your children, and they're wayward, and your heart is broken because you know they're making the wrong choices. And you know they are volitional creatures, and they're making their own decisions, and you can't control them anymore at this stage of their life. And so, manifold temptation. It is, it is many colors, if you will. It, it is a, a rainbow, a, a plethora, a variety of different trials that, that enter into a person's life. Somebody says, Pastor Johnson, I was kind of hoping this message this morning would encourage me. So far, none of this is encouraging. All right, we've got to identify that there are various kinds of trials, manifold trials, temptations. But let's also identify that there is a manifold grace of God For every type of trial that comes into the life of the believer, there is also sufficient grace. And I'm not just making this stuff up. Look over just a few pages in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. You need some encouragement? Well, read 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse number 10. And remember the word manifold. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 10. The Bible says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There is a variety of trials, yep, but there is also a variety of of God's grace in in a believer's life. And so rejoice in that. So the question is, how many? Well, the simple answer, how many trials? Lots of trials. Lots of different types of trials. But how many graces of God? Well, lots of evidences of God's grace in your life as well. All right, the second question for the morning is, how heavy? How heavy? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6. How heavy are these trying times in my life going to be? I think it's interesting that he uses the word heaviness. Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Um, so how heavy? The answer I would suggest is that it is going, you could say real heavy but uh, to make it more, I think, specific, you could say that it would be personally heavy when you try to answer the question how heavy. It'll be personally heavy in the sense of subjectively heavy. Okay, I'm saying that the trials that come into your life might not actually be heavy for somebody else, but they're going to be heavy for you. If you've tried to do any weightlifting, uh, you understand that if you're with somebody and, and they're lifting some weights, they may be able to lift more than you can or you can lift more than they can. It's heavy for them. It's, you know, maybe not heavy for you, whatever. How heavy? I want you to know that it is real heavy when you're the one trying to lift it. And, and other people might look at your situation and say, ah, that's no big deal. Maybe they've lived a little. Maybe they've been through that. Um, and now they're on the other side of it. But, but you are in a place of distress trying to lift it up. And that's the idea of heaviness. It is, it is that which stresses you or is, it causes distress. And we've already, when we answer the question how many, we've already dealt with the idea of, of specific trials, right? But the idea of heaviness is not the idea of specific trials. The idea of heaviness is your emotional response to carrying those trials. I mean, you are in a place of grief. You are distressed. It's your emotional response because of the heavy burden that you're facing. And often when you get bad news about your health or about your job, bad news brings about grief, an emotional kind of panic. Um, And this is not unique to your situation or my situation's. But this idea of bad news carrying with it some kind of emotional impulse known as grief is actually replete through the scripture. There are numerous examples of heroes of our faith that get some bad news, let's say, and they respond evidencing grief, distress, and heaviness. And I want you to see that. Keep your place in 1 Peter chapter 1 and consider with me Matthew chapter 17. Would you turn over there? I hope you, by the way, I hope you value a Bible-preaching church, a church where you hear Bible pages turning, and you see people looking at the Word of God. If our day needs anything, they need the Word of God. Um, and so I commend you for following along, and appreciate the sound of Bible pages turning. Matthew chapter 17, we're thinking about this idea of heaviness and grief and stress. And Jesus, in Matthew 17, we'll look at verse 22, he is prophesying here concerning his death and his resurrection. And the bad news, if you will, is communicated to his disciples. And in verse number 22, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you see Jesus here communicating the bad news. At least it's bad news in the eyes of the disciples. He says, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And notice this, they were exceeding sorry. The disciples responded with being deeply grieved, exceeding sorry. It's the idea of heaviness and grief. So again, you feel like it's overwhelming, whatever the bad news is you hear, that's not unique to your circumstance. And this is the disciples' response, they were exceeding sorry, deeply grieved, they were in heaviness, but it's not just unique to the disciples, it's not just unique to finite beings like the disciples, because times of grieving even entered the life of the infinite God, the Lord Jesus himself. You're in Matthew's gospel, turn to Matthew chapter 26. How heavy is the question on the screen? Matthew chapter 26. Notice verse number 37. And he, that's referring to Jesus in Matthew 26, 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be, notice this, sorrowful and very heavy. This is Jesus himself. Then saith he unto them, You have a red letter edition of the Bible? This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. In his humanity, he is feeling the heavy burden of distress and grief as he prays here at the Garden of Gethsemane. Even Jesus in his flesh feels seemingly distressed not in a sinful way And by the way by the way oh and by the way not in a sinful way and you understand that you can face times of grief and you can do it while maintaining your christian virtue because remember what it says in first thessalonians 4 verse 13 i taught through the book of first thessalonians on a sunday morning Hopefully you remember the idea of verse number 13, that we are to sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Jesus sorrowing in his flesh, yet sorrowing in a sinless way. The disciples, I believe, back in Matthew 17, as they are uh, feeling the sorrow and the heaviness of the news that their Savior would be killed and betrayed, rightly sorrowed. Christian people can sorrow and can have times of heaviness. It only becomes sin when you start sorrowing like the world, those that have no hope. You sorrow through the lens of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to get to my conclusion before I'm done answering these questions, but that's kind of the emphasis of the small title there at the top, rejoicing in seasons of suffering. How can anybody rejoice in seasons of suffering? Well, it has to do with a deep gospel understanding. That's a teaser for the conclusion. So the first question was, how many? And the answer is lots of trials, but lots of grace. The second idea is, how heavy? And the answer is that it's personally real heavy, but in heaviness we have a hope that the world does not have. And it is in that hope we rejoice, because we sorrow not as others who have no hope. All right, the third question is this. How long... How long? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. How long will I face these tests, these trying times, these times of suffering? How long? Well, notice verse number 6. I love these words. If you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, this will encourage you. It says, wherein, in verse number 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, though, and here's the words, now for a season. Again, you might underline those words, now for a season. It'll comfort you if you let it. Somebody says, Pastor Johnson, the idea of how many, and you said lots, and the idea of how heavy, you said real heavy, that didn't encourage me all that much. Well, let this encourage you. Because how long? The text tells us that these sufferings are only for a season, they're temporary. So, what are you facing right now? I don't know exactly what you're facing. God knows what you're facing. But what Peter wants to encourage the reader with is that whatever you're facing, whatever multitude, uh, manifold temptation you're going through, it's only temporary. And that's extremely encouraging, especially if you're under the weight of the heaviness of the grief. There's coming a time, what Peter wants you to know yeah, now you're in it. Now, But it's only for a season. And these people, uh, to whom Peter is writing, remember, we've discussed the idea that that they are running for their lives because they love Jesus. And lots of them are homeless. um, They're distressed. It's literally a life or death situation for them. And what he's saying is, hey guys, this is what you're going through now, but it's only for a season. And what he's trying to do is give them a heavenly perspective in the midst of their temporal circumstance. He's saying, folks, there's coming a time when you won't suffer. It's only for a season. He's saying there's an end to the persecution of your faith and an end to maybe the vocational trial. Uh, A lot of these people lost their jobs because they were uprooted. Uh, There is an end to the health trial. You understand, by the way, that the people in the first century didn't have hospitals and medical facilities like we do. And when you're uprooted from uh, your place of origin and you're scattered abroad for the sake of the safety of your own life, it's very likely that as you travel, you come across things that cause you or your children, people you love, that you're traveling with, to be sick. Like these categories of trials that I gave at the beginning, persecution of faith and vocational trial and financial trial and health trial and relationship trial, not only do we face those things, these people are facing those things. And Peter wants them to know, yeah, you're going through that now. But it's only for a season. It's only for a little while. And can I say this? And I want to say this as lovingly and carefully as I can. But even if you were born with a, a lifelong physical affliction, you've had it since birth and you've lived some time, you still got it. Can I tell you that's, that it's still only for a season? It's, it's not eternal, because in heaven you won't have that lifelong affliction, uh, because you are, if you're saved, you are the present possessor of everlasting life. And your life on this earth is only a season. Uh, you, you know what James says? Your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time, and then it vanisheth away. So even if you have a lifelong physical affliction. Remember that life is short compared to eternity with Christ. And rejoice in that. Whatever you're facing. How long, pastor, will I have to face this? Well, only for a season. Some of the financial woes or the physical woes, some of those things will be dealt with in this life and relieved in this life. Some of the relationship struggles that stress us out, there'll be a solution to those in your lifetime. But others may not be solved until eternity. But ladies and gentlemen, rest assured, they're only temporary and they will be solved. And again, I'm not making this stuff up. It's right here in the text. It's also restated later in the book. Would you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5? Look at verse number 10. Notice verse number 10, and this is a really practical charge to us in suffering. Notice 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, notice this, after that ye had suffered a while. And, and the implication here is a little while. It's a little while. After ye suffered a little while. It emphasizes the temporary nature of our suffering. So after that ye have suffered for a little while, The first part of verse 10, the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, he will then make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So this verse identifies a couple things for us. It identifies the temporary nature of our suffering, and it also identifies the value in suffering that God gives you grace through it, but then the benefits include that you'll be more mature, that's the idea of perfect, and you'll be established, and you'll be strengthened through the suffering, and that God will settle you. I've, I've preached before about the value of suffering, the benefits that come from discomfort. I won't do that again this morning, but this verse does give us indications in that direction. So I only had you go to this verse to emphasize that you will have suffered for a little while, to emphasize the temporary nature of the suffering. I want you to see another passage of Scripture. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter number 21. A lot of folks love the book of Revelation. We ought to. A lot of people love it for its prophetic nature. But it's in Revelation chapter 21, where the new heaven and the new earth are described. And I just want you to see verse number 4 to remind you that whatever you're facing in this life, it's only for a season. Because verse number four, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, and neither shall there be any more pain. If you're thankful for that, say amen. Amen. For the former things are passed away. So even if you're facing a lifelong affliction, remember that life is short compared to eternity with Christ. How many? Various uh, manifold temptations. How heavy? Very heavy, and yet we have hope. How long? Well, it's all temporary. The fourth question to answer is how necessary. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6. How necessary? Notice this idea. Verse number 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, and here's the phrase, if need be. If need be. The the indication here is that trials can be necessary. I I pointed out first Peter chapter five verse number ten that, that what comes from trial is often that we are perfected and we are strengthened and we are settled. And for those of us that aren't uh, spiritually where we should be maturity-wise, I mean, it is then that God is going to allow trials in our lives to bring about patience, to bring about maturation, if need be. There are times where God looks at us and says, maybe says, he's taken me for granted. He doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't read my word. He doesn't even talk to me anymore. God says, "I I need to try him. I need to find out if he loves me. I need to find out if he's going to turn to me. If he's going to James 4, 8, if. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. So God allows a trial. If. uh, That conditional idea of if. If need be. How necessary is it? Somebody says, Pastor Johnson, I like the idea of how long and you said it's temporary. The text tells us it's temporary. But somebody says, Pastor Johnson, you know what would be really encouraging? Not just that the 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 trial is temporary, it'd be really encouraging if you were going to point to a verse that says that the trials would be no more. Yeah, yeah, that'd be encouraging, wouldn't it? And yet, the indication is that sometimes trials are necessary. And, And the more spiritually mature we get, the more like Christ we become, which is the picture of spiritual maturity, the sooner we then start recognizing the value in the pain. The the more like Christ we get, the the sooner we realize the big eternal picture and we say, yeah, it is necessary sometimes for me to go through some things for the sake of my spiritual growth. That's one reason it's necessary. Uh, Another reason why we go through these kinds of things is because pain often produces wisdom. Like there's people in here who have been through some things and they're on the other side of it And they are wonderful, godly, sweet-spirited Christians, and now they're seeing other people in a following generation go through those same things. And you know what? That person in that younger generation is panicked, just like the the older person. And so uh, that younger person looks to that older person and says, they've been through the pain I'm going through right now, and they've got wisdom. And there's value in that pain. And so you didn't like it when you were going through it, but it was necessary Not only so you could be spiritually more mature, but so you could pour into somebody else and help them through it. These are are valuable things. These are reasons why it is necessary sometimes for us to go through trying times. Not only these ideas, but it's necessary because suffering produces a God-dependence. I mean, it's supposed to. Again, we're volitional creatures. Sometimes we rebelliously turn our back on God but for those of us that, that love Jesus, often the trial will bring us to our knees and we are dependent on him. We feel like we've hit rock bottom and then we realize he's the rock at the bottom and we turn to him. It produces a God dependence and I would say also suffering, the value of, of it, the necessity of it, it produces a God confidence because we, we know that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We know that he's with us always And all of a sudden, trials come into your life, and you become more than a conqueror, not because of you, but because of Him. Because of Him. You have a God confidence. Come what may in this life. By the way, the Apostle Paul had a God confidence. The Apostle Peter in his later years of life had a God confidence. It was like, yeah, stuff's going to come into my life. It's a part of life because of uh, the, the, the sin curse of Genesis 3 and, and the wages of sin is death. It's going to come. Trials are going to come. And these men, and 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 even today, Christian heroes that we have, we we have them as heroes in our mind because they have a God confidence that come what may, God's going to be good to me. And and even if it means more martyrdom. The Christians that we look up to, we look up to them because even if it means martyrdom, they're strong in the faith because they have a God confidence and a God dependence. And all of this speaks to things I've preached before which are the value of trials. And the value of trials is huge because they're necessary. I mean, this indicates why they're necessary. Okay, so how many and how heavy and how long and how necessary? Well, We've answered those questions in the time allotted. Maybe we could expand on that more in the future. But I want to draw it to the conclusion. And I want to point out back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6, these, these two words greatly rejoice. Wherein it says, Ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. Wait a minute, Pastor Johnson. How can Peter be asking people to greatly rejoice when they're under religious persecution? They're literally just doing what's right, which is loving God, and they're doing it overtly, and they're, so, so they're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and yet they're, they're distressed. And Peter has the audacity to say, dear Christian, you should greatly rejoice, um. And, and, and so somebody says, well, what does this mean? I want you, church family, to understand what this means. He uses this idea of greatly rejoice several times in the book of, uh, book of 1 Peter. Notice verse number 8 of chapter 1, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing. Notice this, ye rejoice. It's the same idea of greatly rejoice, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Uh, chapter 4, verse number 13, if you want to turn over there, again, this idea of, but rejoice in so much as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. You're not the only one suffering. Christ suffered. And so in that, ye rejoice, even his glory shall be revealed. Ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And this idea at the end of verse 13 of chapter 4, exceeding joy, is the same idea as is mentioned at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6. So Peter uses this idea several times of greatly rejoicing. And I think it's so interesting that this idea of greatly rejoicing, exceeding joy, is considered a religious term. Commentators point out that in the secular Greek writings, this particular Greek word was never used it's only used in correlation with people who understand the gospel. It, this idea, what it, the, the, the attribute of a Christian that Peter is trying to invoke here is to be unique to those that call on the name of Christ. And it is, this is not the only place it's found in Scripture. But it is only to be associated with those that believe. Greatly rejoice. What does it mean? It is an experience of intense joy. It is that which is outwardly expressed. It is, it is typically some type of spiritual joy related to rejoicing in God. Rejoicing in who He is. Rejoicing in what He has done. And this is not a mild word. It is the idea of wow. Wow. You see a person who is greatly rejoicing because of Christ, and you look at their life and you say, wow, something is going on in their lives. They know who he is, and they know who they are, and they are in love with him in spite of seasons of suffering. That's the idea of greatly rejoice. Um, And again, it's replete through the Scripture. This Greek word, this idea, is also in Luke chapter 1. got a little time. Turn over there if you would. I want you to see it. I like it when you see it. Don't just take my word for it. Luke chapter 1. You know the text. Christmas is coming, by the way. I'll probably preach portions of this text. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse number 46. This is the kind of response you'd expect from Mary when she hears the news that she is going to bring about the Messiah through the womb of a virgin. Luke chapter 1, verse number 46, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. That idea of rejoice right there. It's not just the same in the English. It is actually the same Greek word. And so all the exuberance of greatly rejoicing that Peter is describing to these people who are in seasons of suffering is exhibited in Mary when she hears she's going to bring about the Messiah. She's greatly rejoicing. Not only uh, Luke chapter 1, but would you turn to Luke chapter 10, just a few pages in your Bible over, Luke chapter 10. Look at verse number 20. The disciples here are rejoicing because they've been able to cast out some spirits. Uh, Notice uh, Luke chapter 10, verse number 20, notwithstanding in this, notice this, rejoice not that the spirits have been subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying that they should greatly rejoice in that the Spirit of God Uh, that these disciples have received the Spirit of God and that their names are written down in heaven. So I have a pastor friend who who dealt with something very interesting yesterday. He had a counseling appointment, a pastor friend in Canada. By the way, this pastor friend will uh, be with us in February for our Furthering the Gospel conference. I I want you to be there. I want you to meet him. But in his uh, years of ministry, he's never dealt with anything quite like this. But he... uh, had a lady in the church who's concerned about her son the son's like in his 30s and she said when he was young he was into satanism and at some point in his youth he felt like a demon had entered him this pastor friend of mine uh, was talking to the lady that goes to his church and said pastor will you meet with my son and the pastor had previously declined years previous to, to a different thing Somebody had, they thought, ghosts in their house and they wanted this pastor to come and exorcise these ghosts out of their house. He said, no, thank you. Uh, so he declined that. But this lady in his church said, will you, will you counsel my son? Uh, knowing his background, knowing drugs, knowing Satanism, knowing all the heavy metal stuff that's been pumped into his brain. And my pastor friend said, okay, I'll meet with him. And this guy now in his 30s uh, sat down in Pastor Ryan King's office and there was a witness and, and different people out in the lobby just in case. You never know with stuff like this. And, uh, and basically talked to him uh, about demon possession. And Pastor King said to this fella, is the demon with us right now? It was a question he asked. And the man said, yes. He is in me right now. And he named this demon that has possessed him. Um, and Ryan said when he named him, Pastor King said when he named him, His whole body got cold, and he felt like he had chills. And um, the fellow said, but I'm on my, he he said, the demon is on his good behavior right now because I'm in front of a man of God. I like how Pastor King said, it's not me, it's Christ in me. You know, Pastor King didn't take any of the the credit for being a man of God. And then he said, do you want this demon to be expelled from you? And the fellow said, yes. And Pastor King, in his office right there, took him through 1 John chapter 4, 1-3, about try the spirits, and then also took him through the gospel and said, I, I'm not going to try to exercise a demon out of you, but I want to see Jesus get inside of you. And he said, he took him through the gospel and said, would you trust Jesus Christ today? And this fellow, he said, looked at him face-to-face, eye-to-eye, long pause, for 10 to 15 seconds when Pastor King asked him, do you want to receive Christ today? Like 10 to 15 seconds. That's an extremely long pause. Want to try it? No, because it's really awkward. He said, he said, that man stared at me like that. And then he said, yes, I want to receive Christ. And he, he prayed the sinner's prayer there with Pastor King in his office. And that man left, we believe, a changed man. And listen, what I just read to you out of Luke's gospel tells the disciples, hey, don't be exceedingly rejoicing over the fact that you have power to cast out demons. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. This 35-year-old man, yeah, it's great that Pastor King was used that way, hopefully, to see this demon exercised from this man. But what's more great is that if he prayed that prayer believing, savingly, his name is written down It's a wonderful thing. And so it's cause for great rejoicing. This idea is not only in these texts. I mentioned Luke 1, Luke 10. It's in Acts chapter 16. I won't have you turn there. Verse number 34. You know the story of the Philippian jailer, right? And uh, the idea of rejoicing greatly, great enthusiasm uh, because of uh, the Philippian jailer getting saved and his entire household getting saved. This kind of joy should be a reality in our lives, ladies and gentlemen, even in times of suffering. And again, it's a religious word not associated with the secular Greeks of the day, only associated with believers. Okay, and then just to to tie up this conclusion, we kind of started at the end of the verse, and we're going to tie up the conclusion by looking at the very beginning of the verse and the first word of the beginning of verse number 6. It's the word wherein, and if you have been here for previous First Peter studies, you understand the content of 3, 4, and 5. And the word wherein in verse 6 ties us to the gospel-heavy content in verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, if you were here when we talked about the idea of inheritance, Our inheritance, that which awaits us in heaven, is incorruptible and undefiled, and and it fadeth not away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. And we as believers are kept by the power of God, verse number 5, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so wherein? So what is this great rejoicing rooted in? It's certainly not rooted in the temporal suffering, the season of suffering, the temporal circumstance. No, it's rooted in the wherein. It's rooted in all that Jesus has done for me. How can I greatly rejoice? Well, I think about the virgin birth. Again, Christmas is right around the corner, the incarnation season. I think about the aspects of the gospel, the virgin birth and Christ's sinless life and his substitutionary death. I deserve to die. You deserve to die. And yet he took our place. And then we think about the victorious resurrection. It's in that that we greatly rejoice. Oh, and I got to say this. You know this idea of greatly rejoicing is not some kind of nearly meditative rejoicing. Not that, it's, not that that's not part of it. You know, contemplative rejoicing, where people just sit back and contemplate, and they're quiet, but they're rejoicing, but there's no outside evidence of it whatsoever. This is one reason why I said don't go to sleep during my sermon. Because if you understand the gospel, there's going to be outside evidences. You're going to be in some seasons of suffering, but somehow you have a smile. Somehow when she's singing about worshiping God and adoring God, you're going to find an amen even though you're going through some stuff. You're going to voice a praise the Lord. You're going to be sincerely excited about all that God is doing for you. There are outward evidences of this great rejoicing. Mary, when she gets the news that she is going to bring about the Messiah, it's exuberance. It's not dead and stale and pretending to be contemplative. It's all tied to the gospel. It's not tied to the expression of a public speaker. It's not tied to emotional sensationalism. It's tied to an understanding of what, who God is and what Jesus has done for you and the sinner that you are. It's tied to an understanding of God's grace in our lives. And so, yeah, these people... They could die because they love Jesus. And yet, in verse number three, he says, blessed be the God. In other words, praise him. That word blessed is the idea of, of a call to worship because of the gospel. When we think about our salvation, when we think about the virgin birth, what a miracle. When we think about the sinless life, you know the sinner that you are. A sinless life, that's a miracle too. When you think about the substitutionary death, when you think about the victorious resurrection, this is cause for rejoicing, even if you're in seasons of suffering. And these are the things Peter wants the reader to understand. Would you bow with me, please, for prayer?